Genesis chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Repheth, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their clans, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nation. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Raama, and Sabtaka. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Ekid, and Kalni in the land of Shinar. From the land, from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Reason, between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Laabim, and Naphtahim, Pathrusim, Kazluim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Simorites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboam, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of, the, of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpashid, Lud, and Aram. I practiced that one too. Um, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpashid fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber, to Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmathith, that's that one's a tongue twister, Jira, Hadarim, Uzol, Dikla, Obol, Abimo, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All of these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Safar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. You can have a seat. Whew. 
That might be the most difficult part of this whole sermon. The funny thing is, is I could probably have said any of those names however I wanted, and everyone, if I would have said it confident enough, everyone would have been like, oh, must be how it's pronounced. Man, it, what a what a wonderful uh, start to the morning! I want to thank you guys. Um, stand up here. You know, it's wonderful how God gifts particular people in particular ways. And Amanda is obviously gifted as a singer and 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 musician. And it's wonderful to hear people who are really gifted. But but for me this morning, what was wonderful. Uh, even more wonderful was to hear all of your voices uh, singing that Jesus is all I need, that there's nothing better than him. Um, and there's something about uh, all of our voices, some of them wonderful, some of them very flawed, but joining united together uh, in the praise of Christ and, and uh, even drowning out my wife, so I can't even hear her, but I can hear all of you instead. And there's just uh, something that does my soul good, and I think that's why Scripture commands us to get together and to praise God together. But as we get started in this passage, I want to say that this was an, a very difficult sermon to write for me. It, it, it really was hard to, to write it. And you might, after re hearing this passage read, might think, well, yeah, of course, <laughs> what are you going to talk about even? I mean, the genealogy of whoever and, and whatever. Uh, but that really actually isn't the reason why this was so difficult to write. It wasn't from a technical aspect that this was difficult, but it was actually from an emotional and personal aspect. And you'll see why. This past year has been a painful one for a lot of us. Uh, for most of us in different ways. And it's been painful for me as a pastor, as a Christian, uh, but especially as a pastor, uh, to see Christians and to see churches uh, so incredibly divided against one another. To see so much conflict happening. And there's a dozen issues that we could bring up here, a dozen issues that have come to the forefront in the last year, whether it be, uh, uh, you know, political party affiliations, Republican or Democrat, whether it be uh, being for masks or against masks or for vaccines or against vaccines, whether it be uh, Black Lives Matter or, or thin blue lines or a million other issues that come up in conversation and in the world and especially in the land of social media. And we're all, we're told that all of these issues, all of these disagreements, all of these conflicts are going to determine the fate of our country, are going to determine the fate of the world. Literally, every single issue is life or death, and so you better be on the right side or else, right? One pastor friend was talking to with with deep sadness, he kept repeating to me, I, I just thought, I just thought my church, I, I thought we were more spiritually mature. I thought, I thought we were more centered on the gospel. As he lamented the conflict, as he lamented the, the, the pain, uh, the disagreement, the, the words that were being thrown around, the way in which they were being thrown around, as he was shocked 
The shock isn't that people in his church disagree on different issues. That's not the shock, obviously. Obviously, we, we disagree on different issues. The shock is how quickly those issues absolutely shattered relationships within the church. How quickly, when the right issue comes up, people immediately break ties, immediately run away, immediately cast, uh, condemn another person whom they used to consider a brother and sister in Christ without a second conversation. For many pastors this past year has been an incredibly difficult one. In fact, you could talk to you about any uh, person who keeps their pulse on this, any denominational leader or whatever. More pastors are leaving their churches or considering leaving their churches than ever before. And it, frankly, it wasn't great before 2020. To see brothers and sisters in Christ who are so polarized, so easily offended that they can't even have a conversation about important issues. They can't even have a conversation sometimes about non-important issues. To see Christians criticizing other Christians, not, not rightly confronting them, not respectfully or clearly disagreeing with them, but to see people who bear the name of Christ reduced to the lowest common denominator of our wonderful culture's public sphere, right? The way that our culture tends to deal with disagreements, which is to say not having a conversation with someone else, but rather Twitter ranting, Facebook posting, uh, meme creating, and essentially middle school insulting one another. These not between people who don't know Christ, but between believers who before and even still would readily admit that they actually agree with one another on the gospel, and yet they would consider each other enemies because they disagree on other lesser issues. And let me be straight with you, every issue that isn't the gospel is a lesser issue. Maybe you're thinking, man, those are some big issues and some big questions. Our, pas our passage is a genealogy uh, that I usually skip whenever I'm reading the Bible, right? What in the world? I'm not saying that we're going to solve all of these issues this morning. We certainly aren't. Nor do I believe that when we walk out of here that there won't be any number of us who will disagree on any number of those issues. However, I think that there is in this passage a fundamental principle that should give us as a church and as Christians uh, a guiding light, if you will, to navigate a world that is incredibly divided. So as we open up to the passage, there's one first truth that I want you to understand and that I want to illustrate from it. And it is that though we are one race, we have differences. Now, I know that's not like a thunderstruck, like, oh my goodness, drop the mic, revelation for you. But I think it's an important basis from which we need to start. That we, all of us, everyone in this room, everyone in this world, we all are one race. 
the human race. That's what the Bible says. Noah is the father of every single person that exists on the planet. And from Noah, however, there have come many different differences between us. So what is this, this chapter, chapter 10 of Genesis, that is called, I don't know if your Bible has a header, but oftentimes it's called the Table of Nations. What is this? It is what they would call a, a segmented genealogy. We've had genealogies before in Genesis, and we'll have more. And most genealogies, when you think of a genealogy, what you're thinking of is a linear genealogy. It's plotting the course from one person all the way down to another person, showing ancestry. So when you open up the book of uh, one of the Gospels, right, and there's a genealogy, it's plotting the course from, say, maybe Abraham to Jesus or, or whatever, and it's showing that there is this lean, linear string of people and that this person is the forefather of this one other person. But a segmented genealogy works a little bit different. It shows how a family tree branches out rather than chart, charting that lineage from one person to another. So here we see that one man, Noah, from him came 70 different nations, 70 different key nations in the ancient world. Ultimately, what, we're sh what it's showing us, if you've been here the last couple weeks, you remember that after the flood, Noah and his sons and his family come off of the ark and God commands them to do what? to fill the earth, to multiply and fill the earth, right? And what it's showing us in Genesis 10 is how that happened, how this blessing of God to fill the earth, to fill the known world was indeed fulfilled by Noah's direct descendants. And even though all of these people come from common ancestry, what we see in this genealogy very particularly described is that differences arise. The genealogy itself is divided into three segments, the three sons of Noah. And each son's line is explained. And on different people, different of their sons, the, the genealogy kind of explodes, right? And it shows how many different sons that they had. And then we see at the end of each of the sons, this phrase, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. We see that, in, or something similar in verse 5. We see it in verse 20. We see it in verse 31 after each of the sons. And then we see it at the conclusion in verse 32 of all of Noah's genealogy. So why does this matter? What's the purpose? See, a segmented genealogy, it showed relationships between people, between groups, that would help them to determine whom they should intermarry with, whom they should have political alliances with, whom uh, should, should help them determine what, what land they should possess or even who they should go to war with. So if you remember with me, Genesis, this book, is written by Moses 
to the people of Israel in the time between when they left Egypt, when they left slavery in Egypt, and then the time uh, when they take the promised land. So in that in-between time, in that time in the wilderness, as they're standing on the Jordan River, ready to go into the promised land, Moses gives them these books. They gives them gen- the, the entire Pentateuch. And Genesis in particular is what we're talking about. And this genealogy tracks all these important nations and people groups who, when they're reading this for the first time, they are the people that are populating the known world around them. And so it's giving them clues as to, with all the people groups, whom they should interact with and how they should interact with those people. For Israel, it helped them to know which people groups were their friends, which nations, which lands were their friends, and which were their foes. In fact, even within this genealogy, there's something that points to the most important of the nations. I mean, all 70 of these nations are incredibly important in the time, but there's something else that even points to those within the 70 that are even more important. Look with me. Sometimes in the genealogy, it says the sons of so-and-so, right? These are the sons of Shem. These are the sons of Ham. These are the sons of whoever. But other times, it says instead, so-and-so father. Now, you wouldn't realize this. You'd think, well, that's pretty much synonymous. But in fact, in the Hebrew, that's two different words that are being used. The second phrase being used less often, seems to indicate groups of people who are of particular importance to Israel. Look with me. Under Ham, you have Cush fathered Nimrod. He's going to lead us straight to Babel. We'll talk more about that next week, but that's an important enemy. That's an important uh, person. Then in verse 13, Egypt fathered. Well, we know full well where Israel is going to stand with Egypt, right? That's not going to be a great relationship in the end. And then you have in verse 15, Canaan fathered. And it leads to this long list of people groups that are all Canaanites. The people inhabiting the land promised Israel, even in this genealogy, you have in parentheses that one person actually becomes the Philistines. And we know if you have been in Sunday school, if you grew up in Sunday school, you know that the Philistines become key enemies of Israel. And so the table of nations, it should have helped Israel, the Israelites to know which nations and people they should align or ally themselves with and which ones they shouldn't. For instance, in a few chapters, you'll see uh, Abraham giving Lot a decision between which land he wants to go and inhabit. Abraham and Lot are blessed and their their families and their possessions grow too large to inhabit the same land. And so Abraham says, hey, let's not get into fights with one another. Let's not have our our servants get in fights with each other. And so here's all this land. You say whether you want to go to the east or to the west, you pick and I'll take the other one. And what does Lot do? He chooses to the east. Towards where? Sodom and Gomorrah. He should have known by this table, he should have known by the oral tradition that would have been 
uh, uh, this because it wouldn't have been written yet at Lot's time, but by the oral tradition, he should have known those are people I don't want to live near. But he didn't. It didn't work out very well for him, did it? Instead, he chooses to align himself with them. He chooses to ally with them. And we'll see when we get to Genesis 13 how poorly that ends up going. So then, with that in mind, sorry that a little bit of a technical history lesson there. So I hope you're still with me. If you're not with me, come back. Okay. How should we apply this? Can we apply this directly to ourselves? Are there certain nations, certain languages, certain people groups that we as Christians should avoid based solely on demographic differences? Should we believe that some people are inherently bad or worse based on these differences? These are important questions. They're important questions because we see too many people and we've had too many Christians get this wrong. The answer it's absolutely not. Look with me, jump with me ahead into Revelation 7, chapter 9 through 10. Or chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, I mean. It says this, after this I looked. Now this is a picture of eternity, okay? This is a picture of glory. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. These are the people of God. In eternity, a great multitude that no one could number. And it says, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, tell me that John, when he's writing the revelation, that he is not thinking of Genesis chapter 10. That he's not thinking of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that all peoples of all the earth will be blessed through him. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's people will be made up of every clan, every language, every land, every nation. The Bible gives us no reason to think that these differences, these demographic differences, if you will, like what language you speak or what color your skin is, are in themselves better or worse. A person is not inherently better because of the language they speak. They're not inherently better because of the nation they were born in. They're not inherently better because of the color of their skin. They're not. In fact, these physical differences are actually, the Bible implies relatively tiny compared to the unity we have as image bearers as one human race. The Bible is clear that these differences, geographic differences, ethnic differences, political differences, are nothing compared. to the unity we have as common ancestors to Noah, as bearers of God's image. It wasn't about the physical differences. If it wasn't about the physical differences, not for us and 
not for the Israelites either. Then what is it about? And what does this mean for us today? Okay. So first thing. First thing was, though one race, we have many differences, right? And here's your second, second point. The problem isn't differences, but rebellion to God. The problem isn't differences, but rebellion to God. To pin it solely on demographics, whether for ourselves or even for Israel, is frankly uh, lazy Bible reading. It's sloppy interpretation. It is not about human or physical categories. We only need to be reminded from the verses that preface this genealogy that we talked about last week. Remember, Noah, in chapter 9, blesses and curses his sons based on their character, based on their character as revealed in their conduct. The sons whose descendants this genealogy charts. Ham is cursed and Shem is blessed, not because of any physical attribute that they have, but instead Ham is cursed for his disobedience, for his moral abandonment, for his dishonoring of his father. And Shem is blessed based on what? His relationship to God. Rewind even farther back. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There are two lines that we see. There is one division in the human race that makes all the difference. Right there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says that there is the seed of the serpent and there is the seed of the woman. Those who are for God and those who are against God. And Cain represents the line of the serpent. But that line was cut off by the flood, right? And so Ham, immediately, right after the flood is done, picks up that line again. Ham becomes the line of the seed of the serpent. Those who represent those who are disobedient to God, who are opposed to him. What the Bible is telling us is even though the flood happened, even though God uh, looked on the world and he saw all this havoc and all this violence and all this corruption, and he says, okay, righteous man, I'm going to take you, I'm going to put you in an ark, I'm going to wipe the rest of this out, even though he did all of that, the cosmic and spiritual battle is not over yet. There's still a war of kingdoms. God, the rightful king, versus Satan, the serpent, and all who would rebel against him. And so in this passage, their physical ancestry represents a spiritual reality. And it's the spiritual reality that we need to understand and grasp for today. Ham represents those who would oppose God and his ways, and Shem represented those redeemed by God through the relationship that they have with God. And what we'll see as we go through the Bible, and what you'd see if you read through the Bible, is that there are some under Ham, Canaanites and Philistines, who will actually not oppose God, who actually not rebel against God, and God will bring them into his people, right? 
And we see that even if we jump forward into the genealogies of Jesus. We see the Rahabs. We see the Ruths, who were not physically part of God's people, and yet, spiritually, by their faith in God, and thus their obedience to him, they're received. We also see Israelites, people whose physical ancestry is just right, who rebel against God, and they're rejected. And so Israel was to base their alliances first and foremost by one single thing. And this is, this is the big deal. This is the thing you've got to get if you get anything. Israel is to base their alliances on their allegiance to God. That is the foundational principle. If the problem isn't human differences but rebellion to God, then what does that matter for us. You see, the reality is the reality is that humanity has in common one really important thing. One thing that we tend to want to deny, but is just clearly evidently true. And that is that we all start out in rebellion to God. That it doesn't matter what land you come from. It doesn't matter what nation you come from. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what tribe or clan or family you come from. It doesn't matter if they call themselves Christians or not. You are not a Christian when you're born. You are a rebel against the king, period. And all of us, that's true for all of us, no matter matter where we are in history, no matter where we are in the world. And that, of course, is the story even of Israel, right? Just like I said, despite their physical ancestry, despite God making them into one nation, despite them having a land and and a language that God gives them, they still rebel. In Ephesians 2, it tells us that all of us, all of us were dead in our sins. And we all followed the course of this world and we all followed the prince, the power of the air, which is Satan. And we all have in us the spirit of disobedience. That's where we all start. Whether we're Jews or Gentiles, whether we're white or black, whether we're American or Russian or Brazilian, it really doesn't matter. Whether we're born into a family of believers or whether we're born into a family of non-believers. Friends, let me be very pointed. We are not born Christian because we're born Americans. Maybe that's becoming less and less something that people tend to believe. But for a long time, I think it was. But God, it says in Ephesians 2, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive in Christ. By grace, we are saved. Not not by nationality we're saved. Not by political affiliation are we saved. Not by language are we saved. Not by family are we saved. No, by grace, by the grace of God, through Christ Jesus, we are saved. And so when Ephesians 2.11 points out that Gentiles were in terms of the physical on the outside of God's people, they were strangers and aliens with no hope. 
Then we get to verse 13 of Ephesians 2, and it says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you understand that when Jesus died on the cross, his death killed the hostility that is between us, that as believers, there is no physical human category that should separate us from the unity with one another. In fact, there is not based on Christ's work, and it's your decision whether you want to lean into that or not. You are united with every other believer, period. You can pretend like you're not and fail to receive the benefits of it, or you can lean into it. So then it says in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Get this. He's using the same imagery of nations and peoples and languages. He says, you're not a stranger and an alien anymore, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, you're not a citizen of a nation here on earth. You're a citizen of the people of God, the nation of God. And that is not physically determined. It's not a human category, a demographic that determines that. The blood of Christ. So the bottom line here is this. Our primary allegiance must be to God. Now, whatever human alignments that we make, whatever alliances, whatever, uh, whatever side of the issues that we're on, our primary allegiance, the allegiance of all allegiances, must be to God. And the modern church, I think, fails to do justice to the biblical reality that the spiritual world, while intangible, is, in, is tangibly affecting the physical world we live in. We're so wrapped up in, uh, I don't know, enlightenment thinking in the modern world and uh, whatever, that we fail to do justice to the fact that there is a very real, if intangible, spiritual world and that that spiritual world affects the physical world. It affects everything. There is a cosmic battle being waged. There is the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And Satan is seeking to distract and divide and devour the world and even the church if he can. And he intends not only to produce greater and greater rebellion to God, but to cause pain and violence in the world. And he will weaponize the human differences, these demographic differences that exist in order to do that. And friends, I hate to tell you, he's a lot smarter than you and me. He's been around a little bit and he kind of understands the human thought process. We are far less different than we'd like to think from Adam to Noah to today. 
Each of us as believers must consider every alliance, every alignment, every view, every side based on their primary allegiance being to God. You see, alliances aren't determined by what is useful in the circumstances you are in. Alliances, both for Israel and for us, are determined by God's word. Every other allegiance that we have is not only secondary to our allegiance to God, but it must be controlled in every way by our allegiance to God. God will not stand for us to serve two masters. He won't. You want to serve two masters? You're gone. He ain't standing for it. He is sovereign. Make no mistake. He is king. And whatever you want to put on the throne, it's going to get tossed. And in one day, every knee, every knee will bow to the rightful king. And then, then the judgment, and he'll decide. Friends, every allegiance When our allegiance to God comes in conflict conflict with any other allegiance that we have, that other allegiance must conform to Christ or it must be rejected. It must. And this will at some point mean that division will be necessary. Make no mistake, I'm not saying that there won't be sides sometimes. I'm not saying that there won't be conflict Sometimes I'm not saying there won't be disagreement sometimes. There necessarily will because there's a whole slew of people that are in rebellion to God. In fact, oftentimes, though we swear allegiance to God, we in different moments and in different situations continue to rebel against God. And so sometimes we'll be in conflict. There will be times when we must stand firm on God and let the ever-changing waves of public opinion crash against us and know that the rock is solid enough to hold. And though we don't revel in this conflict, though we don't look for it, we don't take a stick and go poke the bear, we must be ready for it. If there's a cosmic battle, and if our allegiance is to God, then we will find ourselves at times battling the other side. That will happen. And how then do I know if my uh, a human allegiance that I have has too much weight? Or how will I know that it may or may not be in alignment with my allegiance to God? Well, Goodness, there's a, probably a million different applications here, and, and we could talk about it all day. I just want to give you three really simple things that you can do. First and foremost, the most important thing is this. You've got you to examine God's word. You've got to examine scripture. That is the starting point. That is the reference point for everything right here. And the more you know it, the better you know it. 
the more it conforms your mind and your spirit to God's will, the easier it becomes to know when and how you're aligned with God and when and how you're aligned to something else. This is the manifesto for all who pledge allegiance to God. This is it. It says what to do even when differences arise. If you're not sure, a great place to start is Matthew 18. Matthew 18 starts with an argument, right? With a question to God. What's the question? Hey, uh, God, hey, Jesus, um, in your kingdom, who's the greatest? Oh, heavens. We, we hear that question, all right? Who's the greatest? Who's most important? Who's the best? In your kingdom, who's the greatest? And then Jesus walks through. And he says, hey, you got to be humble. Be humble. When conflict happens, when disagreements happen, when division happens, be humble. Then he says, don't, don't te- be tempted to sin. Don't tempt others to sin. Then he says, go after the lost brother. If someone wanders off, go after him. Then he says, hey, if you're, if you're in a conflict with someone else, if someone sins against you, then you need to go and you need to restore and correct that brother. And then he says that in every situation, forgive, forgive, forgive. If you don't know what to do in the midst of divisions that you're experiencing, especially within the church, I would tell you, start with Matthew 18, read it over and over and over and over again. Be humble. Don't sin. Correct and restore your brother. Go after the lost brother and forgive, 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 because that's what Jesus did for you. The second thing you can do after examining God's word is examine your own words and actions. Listen, are you willing to sin because of whatever human alliance you have? Because you didn't get your way on that issue or in order to get your way in that issue. Are you willing to sacrifice for that allegiance in ways that you are not willing to sacrifice for the gospel? Let me just, let me be very clear. If you're willing to stand up for your side of whatever issue, whether it's a, a social issue, whether it's a political issue, whether it's a whatever it is, and you're willing to lose relationships, to lose friends, to lose face for that argument, but you're not willing to lose relationships and lose friends and lose face in proclaiming the gospel to people, then you are wrong. Your allegiances are off. And you need to do some serious heart work. Like that's a problem. If you're like, oh, I can't say, I can't talk about Jesus to them because they'll be offended. But then immediately when the political issue comes up or the social issue comes up, you're spouting your mouth, you're, you're hitting the Twitter, you're tagging whoever. You know, I don't care what they think. Oh, your heart is wrong. You give more time and energy and resources to a human alignment than your devotion to God. If you risk relationships for it, but not for sharing the gospel. 
If you feel more unified and like-minded with a non-Christian who shares your viewpoint on that issue than you do with a Christian who doesn't, then you have a problem. Because your unity with other believers is far deeper. It runs as deep as the blood of Christ. So examine scripture, examine your own words and your own actions. Last, examine other people groups, examine other cultures. Listen, we have a tendency to characterize people, especially when we don't take the time to even know them. We have a tendency when someone's on the other side of an issue to make a characterization of who that person is or that position. And as soon as someone says something that just in any way aligns with that other position, all of a sudden they are that characterization, not a, a human being anymore. Do you take the time to actually get to know someone on the other side? This is, this is a huge problem with social media, right? At 150 characters on the internet, you don't have space to explain your side, nor do you have the means to actually engage in true conversation or true relationship with someone who might think something different than you. So it, what it turns into is just a bunch of assumptions and an echo chamber of shouting. Taking the time to understand others, it eliminates ignorance, it softens our hearts, even if we never change our views on the issue, right? It helps us to see nuance in people's views that you can, you can agree with one part and you can disagree with them on another part. Oh my goodness, guys, it turns out that when someone has a different view on an issue, that you can actually agree with them on one part and you can disagree with them on another part and that's okay. What? I, what in the world? I didn't know that was possible in 2020, it wasn't. It doesn't just help with our ignorance of others, it also helps with our ignorance of ourselves, right? Because no human culture, no human allegiance, no human category is perfect. We're sinners. Let's not forget we're all sinners. Let's not forget we don't know everything. My wife's like, I never heard Cody say that before, that he didn't know everything. No culture is the standard by which we should examine our lives because no culture fully follows the true standard. No culture or people group or, or demographic does it. If our allegiance is to God and his scripture alone is the authority for our life, then we have to examine our own lives. And what happens when you live, have lived predominantly in one single culture is, is it creates blind spots in, in your life and in your way of thinking. And it's not until someone else, until we enter another culture, until we become close with someone from another culture, or from another uh, uh, mindset, or from another social group, or whatever, and we see how they think and how they react, and we listen that that actually helps us to, get a, to, to turn this mirror that, sh that should be the, the means by which we examine our life, to turn it so we can see every aspect of our own life, right? And we can see blind spots we didn't see before. And we can examine them by Scripture. Go, man, I didn't, I didn't realize I was off there. 
can reveal, heaven forbid, that maybe some of our alignments might have some shadow sides that we have to deal with and confess and admit. And so I want to speak very specifically because as I wrote this sermon, obviously we walked through a, a period in our own country's history that is unique. So I'm working on this sermon, I'm turning on the TV and I'm watching people rush the Capitol and break in, watching an inauguration with 20,000 troops surrounding it. And so the question that I want to briefly address is should we be patriotic or should we not? Is that okay? And I want you to know that I, I do not believe by scripture that there's anything wrong with being patriotic when it's rightly understood. When we're defining the term patriotic correctly. In fact, to choose the degree which our country reflects the values and practices of God's word, we should actually be thankful and we should celebrate that. At the same time, we cannot allow that patriotism to cause us to be dishonest about or to work uh, or to keep us from working against the ways in which our country does not honor Christ, is not aligned with Christ, is not aligned with God's word, or has not in the past. In fact, in fact, listen, listen, I was thinking about this. In fact, our honest confession of those practices and principles in our country, past or present, that grieve Christ, do not discount the reflection of God's word in our nation's history. Indeed, they actually reflect the gospel more. That even when things, even when we get certain things horribly wrong, whether in, in practice or in principle, in the gospel, there is grace. And the truth of scripture through the Holy Spirit can correct our rebellion. And so when we are honest about the mistakes we've made as a country, as a people, in this particular human category, we're actually honest and we confess that. We're not taking away from the Christian values of our country. We're adding to it the gospel because the gospel says we screw up still and we need Jesus and we need the Holy Spirit. And over time, if we stick to the truth, the Holy Spirit will actually transform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. And if we as a church stick to the truth over time, that will actually conform us as a church corporately more and more into the likeness of Christ. And if we as a country and as a people or whatever group stick to the truth, to the degree which we have the Holy Spirit working in us by faith in Christ, even when we get certain practices wrong, we'll actually be conformed. And if we deny mistakes we've made, what we are preaching to people instead of the gospel is, hey, all you need to do is believe in God and follow the Bible's morals and you're okay. But friends, you can believe that a God exists and you can follow the Bible's morals and you can spend eternity in hell. Because as we sang earlier, we need Christ. 
And when, it, when we boil down Christianity to just some morals and believing a God exists, we take Christ out of Christianity. And so, in that vein, one of the things that has come up, has come to the forefront recently, is this idea of Christian nationalism. To state it as clearly as I know how, and I'm not an ex expert, Christian nationalism would, would see a nation, in this situation America, as a vehicle for God's redemptive plan and his covenantal blessings rather than seeing the church as that. It's to attach, that is to attach our identity as a holy nation or a chosen people in any way to our identity as American people. I want you to understand that that is an affront to Scripture, an affront to the gospel. That is not okay. First Peter 2 states that the church, those who are in Christ because of the work of Christ, are a chosen race, quote, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Peter is not describing the geopolitical nation of Israel, and he is certainly does not have in mind the United States of America. He doesn't. Boy, are we prideful. If we think that Peter or John or Paul were thinking, oh man, the USA is going to be great one day. And they were not thinking of us. There's no manifest destiny here. Only God's providence as to the, his authority abides over any country and over everything for all of history. No nation is God's chosen people. God's people are those whom Peter describes as sojourners and exiles in this world because their citizenship is not here. Their primary allegiance is not here. It's to him. It's in heaven. And yes, we are citizens in a lesser way of a country. And in that, we can be patriotic and we can be proud of our country in the ways that it, it is aligned with Christ. But our identity, our primary identity, is not one of nationality or ethnicity or of language or of land, but our primary identity is in Christ. Philippians 3, 17, it says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He is not talking about people who are openly rejecting Christ. He's talking about people who are pretending to be Christians and are not. Their allegiance is really with something else. Their end is destruction, he says. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Friends, church, do not have your mind set on earthly things. Do not, do not settle for earthly victories when we can have eternal ones. These People were using Jesus for earthly gain rather than using their earthly gain for Jesus. We must be the latter. 
He continues in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. All things, friends, all things, every people, every group, every human category is subjected to Christ. So as helpful as these things are and as helpful as those applications can be, the reality is, is that we fail for one reason or another. In terms of allegiance to God, all of us turn out to be lacking. All of us. All of us examine our lives and we go, you know what? I know I say I'm aligned I'm a, uh, my, my, my allegiance is to Christ, but I know in here and here and here and in this moment, in this moment, I was, uh, it was something else. And sometimes it's due to ignorance, right? Even with good intentions, we fall short because we don't know everything. Two people want the same thing, but they disagree on how to get there because we're all ignorant of the best way because we don't know everything. So maybe, maybe just maybe, we ought to give each other a little bit of grace. Or because of our own selfishness and pride, sometimes our allegiance is frankly to ourselves and we may make it look really good and we might make it look really spiritual, but the reality is, is we're really about us. Our desires and wants, our pride, our name, our glory. And if we realize just how big our God is, maybe our opposition wouldn't seem so large and our thoughts wouldn't be consumed with making sure that we're right on some issue, but our thoughts would be consumed with making sure that we are right with God. You see, our allegiance, friends, is not founded on some power in ourselves. Our allegiance to God is founded on Christ's allegiance he was faithful to the Father and to the Father's will, even when it appeared that doing so would mean losing the battle here on earth. He was faithful to the cross, even when human, human reason said, that is foolish. He was faithful to us, rebel sinners, even while we rejected the very words and views and thoughts that were actually our salvation. And even, even when we aren't faithful, he remains so because he will not break his allegiance or his promises ever. Second Timothy 10 says this, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We can mess it up here, but our eternity is set because Christ's allegiance never fails. In light of that, friends, let us consider our own allegiances and our own alignments here on earth. And let us consider our conduct with one another whom we will spend eternity. 